So welcome to another episode of the Can Marketing Save the Planet podcast. And today, Gemma and I are absolutely thrilled to be joined by someone who probably doesn't need an introduction. It is the wonderful Seth Godin. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me and for doing this day after day, week after week. It matters. Thank you. It does matter. And, uh, and, and that's something that's really close to our hearts. The fact that people say to us, why do you do the podcast? What's happening? And it's just kind of like, because we want to keep these conversations going. So we are delighted that all sorts of people are joining us to have these, these much needed conversations um, that we are sharing. So as I said, most marketers are most definitely going to know who you are. My bookshelves are totally peppered with uh, many of your books. So let's dive straight in to why you're here on our podcast around Can Marketing Save the Planet? Not because you've written so many books about marketing, but but also about this more recent endeavor. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the Carbon Almanac? Well, I spent the last year of my life as a volunteer coordinating and organizing a book by 300 other people in 41 countries called the Carbon Almanac. It is a compendium of facts, all footnoted, filled with cartoons and graphs and essays. It's easy and fun to read and share. You can read it one page at a time. And basically what it says is we need to talk about it before we can do something about it, but we can't talk about it if we don't understand it. And what I felt as someone who has been informed, I wrote my first blog post about climate 16 years ago, is I didn't really understand it. And if I didn't understand it, a lot of people didn't. And once you understand it and see the systems at work, then you can do something about it. And so this uh, volunteer-led project has now been a number one bestseller in Italy, the United States, the UK, and uh, Denmark. And um, it is came out in Chinese a couple of days ago. It is starting conversations around the world. It sure is. It, it sure is. is. And, and I love that simple statement on the website of what's this all about. And it's a source of reliable and easily understandable knowledge that you can share to create meaningful impact. And goodness knows, we, we need that right now, don't we? And, and, and the fact that you say, give you a chance to be part of something, it's not too late, but we've got to get started. I'm going to jump right ahead, if that's okay, to answer your question. Absolutely. Um, If marketing can't save the planet, nothing can. Yeah. And we need to understand what marketing is. And once we understand what marketing is, we can easily see that, yes, marketing can save the planet. Yeah, and that, that's the view that's the view of all of our guests so far. Not on its own, but you know, and that brings us round to, to to community. But essentially it's about bringing knowledge and support into one place, isn't it? That can drive change or you can just thrive. Um, but ultimately with climate and sustainability, I think there's a, there's a, the knowledge levels are quite low because the 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 size of the challenge feels quite, you know, huge and complex and, and quite scary. So I guess my question to you, Seth, is how important is community right now? Well, I think community is a basic human uh, need, just like oxygen and water. But again, easily misunderstood and manipulated. You know, people say they have friends on Facebook, but those aren't your friends. That's just what Facebook called them. And community is something that many marketers see as a byproduct or a tactic toward more profit. And again, that's not what we need or what we're talking about here. Culture is easily defined as uh, people like us do things like this. 
that is what things are like around here. And that is built on community, our need to be in sync with others. And like snails don't have community. They're, the snails do whatever snails do. They're not paying attention to the other snails. Human beings, you know, have fashion. Gemma, you're sitting here with, with a, a New York Yankees hat. I'm guessing you're not at a ball, a ball game today and that you're not at Yankee Stadium. But the fashion looks good on you. And it only looks good on you because other people have worn it before you. And yeah. so when we think about what community does and how we define culture, what's happening is the culture is shifting and we are starting to pay attention to things like uh, the impact we've made on colonialism, on caste, on the negative side effects of misogyny and other things, which we didn't notice at all when I was growing up. And that doesn't mean the problems weren't there then, they were. It just means that the community has decided it's worth talking about. Absolutely. And I want to go back to, you know, you you jump right ahead around answering our question about can marketing save the planet? And if marketing can't, nothing can. If people understand what marketing is, you said. So can we just unpack that? Because, I mean, you've written a book, This Is Marketing, you know, Gemma and I, almost the reason we wrote sustainable marketing was to put a stake in the ground to say, okay, there are so many different definitions of marketing right now. So this is our definition of sustainable marketing. And actually, in our world, it isn't really that different from what marketing should be. But of course, there are lots of different definitions of marketing. So now we've got you here. I want to ask you, tell us what marketing is. Okay, so old school marketing was invented right near you by Josiah Wedgwood, uh, pioneer of Wedgwood, China. Uh, inventor of the assembly line and the factory and many other things that enabled him to become the richest person in the world and leave his fortune to Charles Darwin. But that's a whole other discussion. And what marketing was about, particularly for the last hundred years, is advertising, hype, convenience, and status. Mm. That you could make a lot of money if you spent money interrupting people so that they could buy something that would give them convenience or status. And what marketing actually is, is not any of that, but what came before that. What marketing is, is building a product or service so that you can tell a true story that resonates with people and helps them get what they want. And that true story, if it spreads, spreads the word. You don't have to send money to Mark Zuckerberg to spread the word. Nope. The product itself, the service itself has built into it the marketing. So when a company like Procter & Gamble says, uh, we're going to do sustainable marketing by taking some of the plastic out of the heavy plastic bottle we sell and still run ads and blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, I'm not going to be against that, but that's not what we're talking about here. Yeah. And sustainability is not about let's buy more stuff that has a slightly lower impact. Marketing means to me, how are we going to tell a true story about the climate and our impact on the climate to change the systems in our lives so that we tread more resiliently on the earth and are more proud of what we're doing. And as a byproduct, also build better community with more equity and fairness. This is all doable, but first we have to abandon scarcity, status based on scarcity, and hype and convenience because the idea that we can hustle our way 
into a slightly more market share is contrary to our future existence on the planet. And also, you know, just buying greener products and at the rate we're still consuming is just substitution, isn't it? It's absolutely not telling a different story. So how how well do you think marketers are currently doing at understanding the people they seek to influence? So you might be asking capital M marketers or small M marketers. Capital M marketers are people who have that in their title and who get paid money to spend money to grow market share. And they're doing a terrible job of that. They're the ones who are pioneering and pushing greenwashing. And they're just saying, I'm just doing my job, right? That there are people who might be pleasant to have dinner with who work at giant oil companies who are busy trying to persuade people that they're on the path to net zero. That American Airlines in my country just put in an order for 30 supersonic jets that they're going to get in the next 10 years that they promise will work uh, on renewable fuel. There isn't enough land on the planet Earth to grow enough stuff to make that much sustainable fuel. They're lying, mm. but they're just, quote, doing their job. Yeah. There is another kind of marketer, though, and this is the kind of person who's, for example, on our volunteer team of now 2,000 people, and says, you know what? It's not my job to spin, but I'm a marketer because I'm telling a true story that's going to spread. And it's going to be about the fact that, you know what, you don't need more fast fashion. And in fact, fast fashion is destroying the world you care about. And you know what, maybe pushing for Meatless Monday at your high school cafeteria is a better use of your time than having a little compost pile in the backyard. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and one of the things that really kind of jumped out at me when I was going through um, the Almanac is that there was a section around convenience. And I thought, how interesting that in this carbon almanac, it's got, I mean, it's just such a wonderful resource, but how interesting that almost at the very beginning, I think it's like page six, that there it is. There's there's quite a few pages around the tyranny of convenience. So tell us a little bit about that, Seth, because that really got to the heart of me. it, It really landed because I thought, there we go. That's kind of what we're all about. Yeah, I, there were very few pages in the Almanac where I insisted. And one of the inspirations for the Almanac was that essay by Tim Wu. Yeah. And yeah. I said to the team, this is going in the beginning and we're not editing it. It's the whole thing. Yeah. Because most of the resistance that people have to talking about this mm-hmm. problem or doing something about it, if they were honest, is well, it would be inconvenient. It would be inconvenient to change the way I get to work. It would be inconvenient to change the way our company does X, Y, or Z. And most of all, my shopping and my life would become less convenient. And what we've done in spoiled Western society is elevated convenience among above almost everything. You know, I have spent time with Acumen, a charity I've worked with for 20 years in India, in Kenya, in places where people make three or four dollars a day in some places. And convenience is just not on the priority list. No. And when you see how people who are okay with inconvenience live, you realize that it's entirely possible to be happy, to be delighted, to be connected, to be vibrant, and still live a life that's sort of inconvenient. Yeah. And we got seduced by marketers with a capital M to believe that convenience is the king. 
And, and there was that bit that actually says in here, and I've underlined it and I've highlighted it and I've, I've actually stuck it on a post-it note in front of my desk saying, struggle is not always a problem. Sometimes struggle is a solution. It can be the solution to the question of who you are. You know, it's yeah. very, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, well, it's, I mean. It's powerful. The, the gym near my house, you watch people drive up in their Ford Explorers so they can use the treadmill. Yeah. Right. Uh, exactly. Michelle and I were only talking the other day. And, and, and by the way, Michelle and I have our, our friendship groups have got much, much smaller since we immersed ourselves <laughs> in this world. And and people just don't invite us out anymore because of because we, we just start instantly. Um, but we were talking the other day, you know, in the UK, Amazon have said they're going to put their prices of Amazon Prime up 12 percent. And and people are up in arms about it. And I said, well, what do you what if you just stop paying it and they're like but we'd have to wait for delivery i was like wow it's come to that to wait three or four days for something just order it three or four days earlier for when you need it and i think it's to that point isn't it we we're so conditioned to have what we want when we want and 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 at any cost at any cost you know we've interviewed organizations like tony's chocoloni who have right. shown that you can have an end-to-end supply chain that doesn't involve child labor and organizations other chocolate organizations have said that they're not interested it's too difficult and 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 people still purchase you know other other branded chocolate bars and you have to say at any cost convenience and product at any cost it's right. it's unbelievable so we need to insert something here, um, which is that uh, climate shaming is so tempting, and um, I engage in it all the time, but it is not useful for the following reasons. Number one, carbon footprint, as we described in the Almanac, was invented by British Petroleum and Ogilvy and Mather. Carbon footprint was invented so that people like us would feel bad, feel like hypocrites, and not speak up. And an individual's carbon footprint even if you have a private jet, an individual's carbon footprint is irrelevant mm. compared to whether or not Britain has a coal plant. If you can close one coal plant as a group, it makes up for any one individual's actions times you know, 10,000. So we need to get our arms around the idea that we need systemic change. Yes. And where systemic change comes is simple. There are people at Amazon who are listening really carefully to what people like the three of us say. And if enough people speak up, and it's a surprisingly small number, they will do things like default to not shipping in one day, but to shipping in three, which dramatically shifts the impact of all of that shipping, right? That one person saying, I'm not going to use Amazon Prime is fine. But what really matters is if 100 people show up 10 days in a row, all hundred of them sending a letter to the right person, a policy is going to change. And we need to change the systems. Yeah, we do. That is where the scale is. Yeah. I, I mean, we had a, we've had a, lots of wonderful conversations. More recently, we, we had a conversation with Rob Harriston Plato, who was talking about that system change. We were talking about earth systems as well. And he was talking about, uh, you know, the Gaia uh, system. But, but um, one of the things he said is that, 
revolutions happen in two phases. The first phase is that you feel like something is very, very wrong with all of this. This is not working for for me. Um, And then you realize that everybody else, the second phase is that everybody else is starting to feel the same things. Do you feel that, you know, without kind of over-dramatizing a revolution, but do you feel that we are getting to this tipping point where there is this level of of unrest and more people are feeling the need to to speak out? So this challenge is unique in a whole bunch of ways. And Sinclair Lewis had a quote about, I'm going to get it wrong. Don't underestimate how far a human being will go to defend what they get paid to do. Hmm. That when your livelihood in terms of what you get paid or how you spend your money is at stake, yeah. People will create an entire narrative around it. You know, in my country, 160 years ago, there were a lot of people who maybe were good people who spoke up in defense of slavery because their livelihood seemed to be connected to it. And what we have now is a situation where 7 billion people, on one hand, could lose their home, yeah. could lose their life. But on the other hand, their livelihood is clearly going to be affected by this revolution. And then you have very powerful industrial forces, the ones that narrated the last 50 years of all of our lives. Yep. With our permission, all of them are taking a deep breath and saying, we cannot keep doing what we're doing and have the revolution happen at the same time. So what are we going to do? And so I, I believe on a good day that the smart people who have something a lot to lose are going to shift gears. And on a bad day, I say to myself, there's nothing we can do. It's all over. It's, yeah, I, I have those days too. Um, uh, sometimes I'm, I'm, uh, I bounce around and other days I just sit with my head in my hands. And I think that, that's, that's the beauty and the sadness of being part of this world, isn't it? Um, I mean, we talk about people, you know, they're telling the stories um, and we need, to, we need to do things differently. We need to tell different stories. So, you know, to all the marketers listening to this, looking to change their narrative and tell better stories, what would, what would you say to them? Well, so, you know, let's go back to, to Tony's, which has been a huge inspiration to me. I almost started a chocolate company. Um, I have all this bar <laughs> chocolate in my office. Um, and then I became friends with Sean Eskinozzi, who's a master storyteller and chocolate maker, one of the first bean-to-bar chocolate makers. He also makes very inconvenient chocolate. and the way you tell a story about that, you know, a, a Cadbury's bar costs a couple quid, a uh, bar from Sean costs 15 US dollars. How do you explain why that is? Yeah. Inconvenient chocolate that's worth paying for. But then Halloween rolls around in the US, probably where you are too in six weeks. And the, the watchword is big and cheap. So how are we going to change the story of just that one little thing? Yeah. And the answer is, Human beings care about status and affiliation. Status is, is this demonstrating that I have more of something? The two of you get status because you are mindful and thoughtful and community-oriented and show up with this podcast. And you might not be getting paid money to do it, but you are getting paid in esteem. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is affiliation, which is the two of you are now my friends because we are on the same wavelength. Yep. And so those are the things we care about, status and affiliation. So what marketers have to do is figure out the way 
Yvonne did at Patagonia. How do you award status and affiliation to people who are working with you to change the system? And I think as a marketer, this is the greatest opportunity since the internet. Because for 50 years, you awarded status and affiliation by giving people bling that's convenient and cheap. And now we're changing the rules. And we're saying status and affiliation will go to people who don't show up wearing a fur coat and getting off a private jet, but who show up having architected new systems. Yeah, love that. I love the simplicity of breaking that down into those two important areas, which, of course, when you put it so succinctly, it's so obvious. But, you know, if we if we reframe the thinking um, that that is really simple, isn't it? I'm not saying it's simple to adjust, but it's a it's a simple construct to to work with. And and do you think, you know, from a marketing perspective, uh, marketers have got to, to, to find that how, I mean, where, do, where are we going to start? I mean, our view is that we start with education because for us, when Gemma and I were writing and researching um, sustainable marketing, we were not on this trajectory at all. You know, this, this kind of sideswiped us and it was like, well, hang on a minute. Now I know all this. There's no way I can just go back to doing what we were doing before. You know, it is completely consumed our lives. Yeah, and, and, and rightly so. You know, I feel very validated that it's, it's it, I feel almost honored to be able to do this work because it feels like it's the right thing to be doing. So for marketers, uh, you know, and, and we say very boldly, we, there are approximately 10.6 million marketers on the planet. How incredible, how powerful a community of game changers could that be? Um, and so where do, where, do we, where do we start? I mean, we start with education. We start with getting carbon literate. I think that is really important, understanding the science. What else do you think is important for marketers? Okay, <clears throat> so just to remind everybody, we're talking about marketers with a capital M because yeah. there are billions yes. of marketers with that's a small right. M. That's true, that's yeah. true. Right? Yeah. But among professional marketers, here's the analogy. Uh, in 1976, I got my first email account. And in 1988, I started one of the first internet companies. I had sales calls with any company I wanted to in those days. I wasn't known but if you showed up and said, I am pioneering internet marketing, you could get a meeting with the new marketing department. Yeah. And many of the new marketing departments had as their brief, have meetings, but don't do anything. Make it look like we are playing at the edges of this. So I could meet with Waterstones and Barnes and Noble, and you could like talk, 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 and they would go back to selling books at bricks and mortar. And I could also meet at Amazon. And Amazon said, this is an opportunity that the internet is going to change the entire game. We're not here to defend the bookstore. We're here to serve a customer using this new tool. So, you know, 30 years later, I can see which companies had marketers with a capital M yeah. who saw the internet as an opportunity to change things. And other companies that had people say, I'm just doing my job, which is to do as little as possible. And so I think the real lesson here, because while there might be 10 million marketers, they're not all subscribers to this podcast. The people who are listening to this podcast are the other kind of marketer who want to lead. And if you want to lead, you need to say, not how do I make my boss happy by doing something convenient and small? You say, how are we going to be system changers here? And how are we going to articulate 
that if we play a totally different game, we have a chance of doubling our market share because it's a different market. And Ford Motor Company didn't understand it, but Elon Musk did. And it's absurd that Tesla is worth more than Ford. It's not, but the market thinks it is because it was on a growth trajectory because they played a different game. So if you're a capital M marketer who's like my work or your work, I think you need to say, where's my opportunity here? Not how do I replace the paper cups in the break room with ceramic cups? Because that's not the point. No. And isn't it, isn't it exciting time right now? I mean, in amongst all of the, the challenges we face as society and the planet, it is an exciting time to be a marketer, isn't it? Because if you take, take that step to understand and essentially want to tell a different story and do things differently, I think everyone's, everyone's at that point where we need a change, aren't they? And it, it, I, I think it's a really exciting time, to be honest. And I say it over and over again. This is not, this shouldn't be scary, although it is, but embrace it. Embrace it is important. I think in the dictionary, scary and exciting might be on the same page. But, yeah. you know, some people go to the amusement park and get on the roller coaster on purpose. Yep. So we're on a roller coaster for sure. So you might yep. as well get on it on purpose. Absolutely. I love that. So, Seth, that brings us to the three questions that we ask all of our guests at the end of the podcast. We ask the first question is, can marketing save the planet? Yes. If we are willing to do things that are inconvenient and uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think that's what we absolutely need to do because it's uncomfortable anyway at the moment, isn't it? So let's do something while we're uncomfortable. Um, And what do you hope business looks like in 10 years time? Um, I think we've already crossed a Rubicon and people of means are paying significantly more of their income for experiences than they are for stuff. And I think if we accelerate that, because we have enough stuff among the privileged part of the world, um, that will make a big difference. But what I really think the possibility is, is for businesses to take the relationship that they have worked so hard to have with consumers, not just to be generic providers of stuff, but to have a personality and to build connection and use that to lead, not to industrialize our way to oblivion. Yeah, I love that. And and just before I get to the last question, because you said something there about we've got more stuff. And one of the concepts that um, when we interviewed um Philip Kotler a while back now, but he he talked about this idea of demarketing. But there's almost some negative. I mean, he's right. You know, we don't need as much stuff. But it's, there's from a storytelling perspective, is there some challenge with that demarketing position? Right. So I'm certainly not going to disagree too much with the author of the textbook, but I would say the following: my, my friend Michelle, um, who is one of the key contributors to the Almanac, and we've he and I have never actually met in person. Um, is a loud proponent for less. That one way to do the math is to say that the only way for us to get to where we need to go is to just less of all commerce and only ride a bike and, and on and on. And my answer is, I don't know how to market that to people who grew up with more. And we definitely live in a world that doesn't have an emperor and we cannot put into place what we really need, which is a, uh, a carbon dividend worldwide. 
we should get there as fast as we can. But we're going to get there by selling more to all the people who are addicted to more. The question is, can more become equivalent to better, not to just more stuff? And so instead of spending $500 on fast fashion and throwing it all out, what happens when people spend $500 on one item that raises their status and that actually sequesters carbon as a result? That the people who are burning the most stuff, you know, if, if everyone in the world ate beef the way people in the United States eat beef, we would need a whole other planet just to hold the cows. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So there's a group of people, and it's not even a billion who are doing the vast majority of the burning of carbon. We need to figure out how to cut that in half among those people so that the people who are among the poorest in the world can still eat and live happy lives. That's going to happen by selling more affiliation, more status, more community, and more connection to people in exchange for less convenience and less bling. Absolutely. That, that meaningful exchange rather than this, this kind of total unconscious exchange that we seem to have at the moment. Um, fantastic. So I'll get to my last question for you, Seth. If you can give one, I mean, you've given so much advice yeah. and shared so much wisdom with us today, and we're really grateful for that. But if you could give just one critical piece of advice to a marketer, what would it be? We built this almanac the way we did because it's a lesson in how all of us can make a difference. You as a marketer by yourself aren't going to make a difference, but you know 10 other marketers. You could start a podcast. You could have a weekly book group. You could figure out how to connect by Zoom in a mastermind group every two weeks. Find the others. Find the others is the first step. And you know the glorious days of the internet, I still remember what how cool it was to be in the room with the other builders 30 years ago. Make the room. Yeah. Be in the room. Because if you're in the room where it happens, Lin-Manuel was right. You can make a difference. And find the room where it happens. And if there isn't one, go build one. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we did when we when we started this podcast, keep the conversation exactly. going. And, and initially, it was like us going out, going, do you want to come into the room? And now we've got people going, can we come in the room, please? Can we come in the room? And exactly. it, it's a, it makes you feel good, doesn't it, in your soul? So. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Well, I'm thrilled to know both of you. Thanks for doing this. Don't stop. It really matters. Oh, we're not stopping. We've only just started. Wonderful, Seth. Thank you so much. (laughs) 